And now I pray that you would come and open up your word even more to me and to each of us. Help me uh, to be clear, to be in accord with your word. Um, help all of us to come with, with humble, open hearts, trusting that as we open up your word, you will speak to us. It's not about me, it's about you speaking through your precious scriptures. And so come and, and work now in me even more and in all of us, I pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, let's turn to Isaiah chapter 38. And I'd like each of you to have a Bible that you can follow along with us. So if you don't have a Bible with you, raise your hand. We want to bring one to you this morning. We're going to be covering Isaiah 38 and 39. Now, be bold. Uh, I've got two chapters we're working through, Isaiah 38, 39. And in these Bibles we're passing out, Isaiah 38 is on page 598. So go ahead and turn there. In the Bibles we're passing out, page 598, Isaiah 38, we're all turned there. Well, I was thinking this week, as, as I was pondering these passages, that the Bible is a lot like an antivirus program. Do you all have an antivirus program on your computer? So how many of you have been hit by a, a computer virus? All right, I hear it's nasty, all right? So it's, it's very, it's just tragic how it works, but you know, your computer is running just fine, everything is just humming along, but there's this virus lurking in your system that you know nothing about, right? So even though everything's working fine, everything seems normal, all of a sudden, boom, this virus like leaps out and starts eating your files and writing over your hard drive and rewriting registries and technological disaster, right? Now, sin is a lot like a computer virus in this way. You can be living your life following Jesus Christ, trusting him, loving him, and everything can seem and feel fine on the surface, but there can be pockets of sin underlying that you're not even aware of, which all of a sudden can just like rise up and you find yourself feeling things and saying things and doing things that you can't believe you're feeling, saying, and doing. Sin can be under the surface, you're not even aware of it, and just suddenly rise up and start to attack you, just like, like a computer virus can. Now there's good news, though. Okay, God does not leave us defenseless in these situations. He's given us an antivirus program. Okay, this is your antivirus program. And if we will regularly scan our hearts with this scripture... God, by his Holy Spirit, will, just like your program does, you know, little red letters, warning, okay? And then you can click destroy or not. See, this book is so powerful. It not only reveals the sin, but it also gives you means by God's grace to destroy the sin. It doesn't just show you, it enables you to destroy it. Now, the reason I mention that is in these two chapters in Isaiah, I think one of the main words God wants to speak to us is, scan your heart with God's word to see the sin that's there and especially one particularly devious and insidious kind of sin that we're going to see in these chapters today. Are you ready? Okay, let's start with chapter 38. What's the point of chapter 38? In verse 1, we see that Hezekiah was sick and dying of a terminal illness. Verse 1, in those days... Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die and shall not recover. Now, in that verse, God is not promising 
Hezekiah that he's going to die. We know that because of what happens in the ensuing verses. What God is simply saying to Hezekiah is, you have a fatal disease, a terminal illness, and unless there's supernatural intervention, you're going to die. Okay, so Hezekiah does the right thing. Look at verses 2 and 3. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. Just focuses totally on the Lord. Turns away and just focuses totally on the Lord and said, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. So Hezekiah does the right thing. Facing an impossible situation, he calls upon the one for whom nothing is impossible, right? And God responds to Hezekiah's prayer. Verses 4 and 5, look at what he says. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Go and say to Hezekiah, thus says the Lord, the God of David your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. So, you got a fatal disease. Unless there's supernatural intervention, you're going to die. Hezekiah turns and cries out to the Lord, weeping. And God says, yes, I will heal you of this terminal illness. I will add 15 years to your life. And then, what happens next is astonishing as well. The last verse of the chapter, we read that Hezekiah asks God for a sign. Give me a sign so I know that you're really going to do this. And look at this astonishing sign God gives, described in verses 7 and 8. This shall be the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do this thing that he has promised. Behold, I will make the shadow cast by the declining sun on the dial of Ahaz turn back ten steps. So the sun turned back on the dial the ten steps by which it had declined. Here's what's going on. Let's try to picture this in my mind. So, but we know that the sun, we can talk about the sun going up and down. Do we still talk about the sun going up and sun going down today? But we know it's really the earth moving, right? We got all that wired. Okay, but we'll still talk because that's how we talk. So the sun, the sun is going down in the east, all right? And as the sun goes down, shadows are going longer. That's how it goes, right? Sun goes down, shadows go longer. So there's like a sundial or something that marches the, you know, the, uh, the duration of time. So the sun's going down and Ten steps are, are going this way. And God says, I want to show you that this is really me speaking through Isaiah. Because Isaiah says that the sun's going to go back. It's going to like, every day it's been going down, down, down. This day the sun's going to go down and then come back. So the shadow's going to go this way and then come back. Just to show you, this is God talking. And that's exactly what happens. God has the sun come back. The shadow shifts. Hezekiah says, whoa, this is God. Yes, I'm going to be healed. Okay, now. I would guess that some of you aren't 100% sure that that kind of thing really happened. I mean, maybe you're like brand new, you're learning about Jesus Christ, you, you, you're interested in learning about God and what, it, what the cross is all about, and, and if, if you're in this, in this learning posture and here just to kind of figure out some more things for, for, um, for yourself, we are really glad that you're here, first of all. And you might be thinking, that couldn't have happened because that's against like the laws of physics or cosmology or science. I mean, that would be totally against the laws of science if this thing were to happen, right? Right. 
Here's why I believe this happened. Okay, for, for many reasons, I believe that God created everything that exists. Many reasons for that, but let's just start there. And because God created everything that exists, he created the laws of science and the laws of physics and the laws of cosmology. The God who created these is above these. So he can suspend them and modify them and do whatever he wants to. That's what miracles are, right? Miracles are the law, natural laws suspended in some way, cause, effect, whatever it might be. And so because God created everything, including the laws of physics and cosmology and, and science, God can suspend those laws and work miracles as he does here. I mean, just if, if there's a God who spoke everything into existence, this is no problem for him. Right? He could do this blindfolded, right, with one hand tied behind his back. Not a problem if God, in fact, created everything that exists, which the Bible says he did, and I believe he did. So just process that in that way. God is not under the laws of science. Like, how are we going to do this? And fi- God's above the laws of science. He created the laws of science. All right. So God gives Hezekiah this powerful sign to assure him that he would be healed. And then Hezekiah responds in verses 10 through 20, writes a poem, basically saying, I was in need, and God, you met me. And just read verse 17 to get a feel for what's happening in Hezekiah's heart as he's experiencing all this. Verse 17, he says, Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness. But in love, you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. Okay, so what's the point of chapter 38? I think Isaiah's point is that he wants us, as we come to the end of chapter 38, to feel what Isaiah was experiencing, I'm sorry, what Hezekiah was experiencing about God. He wants us at the end of chapter 38 to be just blown away by who God is as experienced by Hezekiah. And there's, there's seven things I just want to pull out. First of all, Hezekiah saw this amazing truth that God had cast all of his sins behind God's back. Verse 17, right there. You have cast all my sins behind your back, which means God had forgiven all of Hezekiah's sins. Hezekiah knew that he had sinned against God. He knew that he deserved judgment from God. And Hezekiah understood that God had completely forgiven all of his sins, his past sins, his present sins, and his future sins. God had completely forgiven Hezekiah. Now, how can a just God forgive this man's past, present, and future sins? It's because of what, at the time of Hezekiah, what happened 700 years in the future. Jesus, the Messiah, dying on the cross, being punished for Hezekiah's sins. And so the moment that Hezekiah repented and put his trust in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob trusted his mercy. At that moment, all of his sins were completely forgiven because of what Jesus would do. Just like you today, the moment you turn and put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your Lord and as your treasure, at that moment, all of your sins were completely punished in what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. And so you're completely forgiven. Past sins, present sins, future sins. Hezekiah was just rejoicing in how God had cast all of his sins behind his back. I mean, isn't that an amazing thing? 
Some of you maybe are still like, you're, you're feeling the burden of guilt before God. You don't have to feel that. Not because you're not guilty, but because God sent Jesus to take your guilt upon himself, to take the punishment you deserve upon himself, to be punished in your place. He loves that much. Okay, so that's what Hezekiah experienced. God casting all his sins behind his back. Second, mm, Hezekiah saw that God loves him. Verse 17, in love, you've delivered my life from the pit of destruction. Even though he'd sinned against God, even though Hezekiah deserved punishment from God because of what Jesus would do, God looked upon Hezekiah with love and compassion. And so because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, the creator of the universe, who's sovereign over everything, he can be looking upon you right now with love and compassion and care and affection for you. That is sweet, isn't it? That's the second thing. Third, Hezekiah saw that God hears his prayers. Verse 5, God says, I have heard your prayer. So think about it. Here's the God who's, again, created everything, massive, sovereign, powerful. And the moment that Hezekiah turned and talked to God, God heard his prayer. Hezekiah didn't need to get in line. It wasn't that God was hearing like millions of prayers trying to, which one's Hezekiah's again? You don't know. No, the moment that you pray, because God's infinite, the moment you turn to God and talk to God in Jesus' name, he is giving you his complete and undivided attention. It's an awesome thing. Fourth, Hezekiah understood that God saw his tears. Verse five, God says, I've, I've seen your tears. Isn't that precious that God would say that? I heard your prayer Hezekiah, I saw your tears. I'm sure some of you uh, have wept alone this last week for some situation or other. Do you realize that God saw your tears this last week? Didn't just see them, but the word seeing there is, is that he cares. He would say to you, I heard your prayer. I saw your tears. This is what Hezekiah was experiencing of God. Fifth, Hezekiah saw that God has power to heal sickness. Verse five, behold, I will add 15 years to your life. Terminal sickness. God just says, be healed, and Hezekiah is healed. Because of Jesus Christ, if you're trusting him, every sickness will be healed, either in this life, as happened with Hezekiah, or in the life to come where you're raised up and you're with Christ forever in the new heavens and the new earth with a brand new resurrection body, God has power to heal every sickness. Sixth, two more. I love this one. Hezekiah saw that God helps him when he is weak in faith. Isn't that precious? So here Hezekiah says, is there a sign you can show me? I'm having a hard time believing. I'm terminally ill. This doesn't happen every day. I'd like some, some you know, confirmation, some assurance, would you strengthen my faith that you're going to do this? And God has the sun go back. And just the point is, God in his mercy, every time you come to him feeling your weakness in faith, if you will come sincerely and ask him, would you strengthen me? Would you help me? Would you give me a sign? Would you work so that my faith will be strengthened? He will never leave you alone. He will always help you. He may bring a brother in your home group or some other follower of Christ to call you up. He may have your wife say something to you. He might bring you something out of the scriptures. He might have the son move back. There's all kinds of things he could do. 
but he will never just say, you get strong and then let's talk. He will always strengthen you when you come to him humbly and earnestly needing to be strengthened, longing to be strengthened in faith. Last one, seventh. Hezekiah saw, obviously, that God controls the solar system. I mean, just think about the size here. And God can just say, sun, would you move back a couple degrees? Or earth, would you turn back a couple degrees? Whatever it is. And it happens. God's that big. Okay, so chapter 38. Isaiah wants us at this point to be feeling what Hezekiah experienced of God. Now, what's the point of chapter 39? Verse 1. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. So picture what's going on here. Babylon, massive empire to the east. The king of Babylon hears that Hezekiah, king of Judah, had been miraculously, amazingly healed from a terminal illness. And so the king of Babylon sends his son with some diplomats, some envoys, with letters and a present to go and basically say, congratulations, we're celebrating with you your amazing recovery. This is an astonishing thing. So here's these dignitaries there, the son of the king of Babylon. They are right there. Now put yourself in Hezekiah's shoes. Okay, you've just been healed of a terminal illness. You were going to die. Now you have 15 more years. Okay, you've just seen that God has cast all your sins behind his back. You've just seen that God loves you, that he hears your prayers, that he sees your tears, that he has power to heal, that he helps you in your weakened faith, that he's in control of the whole solar system. So you've just had this amazing experience of God. Not only that, you've been to the temple where they've sung Psalm 96.3, one of many verses, declare his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. So you've just had this amazing experience of God's wonderful deeds, his glory in taking care of you. You're told to proclaim that. You've experienced all these things about God. So at that moment, as King of Babylon's son and these diplomats are there, what would you say to them? What would you be longing to have them see? What would you be bursting to communicate to them about whatever? What would you be longing to proclaim? Would you be longing to tell them about what God had done? It's not what Hezekiah did. It's not what he did. Look at verse 2. It's tragic. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly. Welcome! And he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Welcome. Let me show you all my stuff. Okay? Look at my storehouses. Look at all this gold that I have. <laughs> and look at the silver that I've got. It's okay, look at the armory. And I think you're maybe a little bored. It's like, uh, okay, like a long slideshow with your uncle or something. Anyway, right? I mean, he wants to show them all of his stuff. What he longs to have them see is 
himself, not God. That's what he's longing to have them see. In a very short period of time, from chapter 38, just a few verses before, to chapter 39, Hezekiah has forgotten about God. And now his passion is to exalt himself. A massive switch from what he was experiencing and feeling and saying in chapter 38 to what he's experiencing and feeling and saying in chapter 39. And God brings a word of judgment to him in verses 5 through 7. Verse 5. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming. The days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king. So here's what Hezekiah has just heard. Everything in Jerusalem that you've got, that your fathers have stored up, Jerusalem's going to be conquered, Jerusalem's going to be destroyed, and all this stuff carried to Babylon. And your sons are going to be captured, taken to Babylon, castrated, and eunuchs in Babylon's court. How does Hezekiah respond? We can see how far he's moved from God by what he says in verse 8. Then said Hezekiah to Isaiah, The word of the Lord you've spoken is good. Good news. This is good. Good? Jerusalem conquered. All the wealth of Jerusalem taken to Babylon. Your son's captured, castrated eunuchs in the temple? Good? How's that good? Second half of verse 8. For, he thought, well, there will be peace and security in my days. This won't happen until after I'm gone. Everything's good. See, at this point, Hezekiah is completely bound up in pride and self-exaltation. Isaiah has crafted these two chapters, so at this point we are just stunned. What happened? What happened to Hezekiah? A few verses before, thanking God, praising him, glorifying God. A few verses later, completely bound up in pride and self-exaltation. How is that possible? It's because of sin. The deceitfulness, the insidiousness, the deceptiveness of sin. Hezekiah had been born again. God had taken out his heart of stone, given him a heart of flesh. He knew the living God, but he still had, like we all have, all of us who've been born again through faith in Christ, we still have what scholars call indwelling sin. Little viruses in the system, pockets of sin. And especially what Isaiah wants us to be thinking about here is the insidiousness of the sin of pride. Pride. We can very easily do exactly what Hezekiah did and slip into and succumb to the sin of 
pride. That's what Isaiah wants to teach us in chapter 39. Just like Hezekiah, you, me, we can very easily slide almost seamlessly into the sin of being completely self-focused and proud and self-exalting. It just feels so right when you're there, doesn't it? It just, it's like a seamless, just, this is just right. You feel so justified in that. I mean, sad example. Last Sunday, I had just come back from being at the men's retreat with uh, the men at, at the Grace Bible Church. And God had, had given me much undeserved grace while I was there. And I was sharing with Jan some of the things that the Lord had done. And he'd helped me, given me energy, and given me, I think, some helpful things to say. And then this sentence came out of my mouth. And the moment I said it, it, it just reeked of cockiness and pride and boastfulness. And it just stunned me. In, in the course of about 20 seconds, I moved from thanking the Father and aware of his undeserved grace to boasting. And you've experienced that too, haven't you? Just like Hezekiah, at one moment we can be strong in trusting Christ and humble before the cross and loving him. And then what happens? This pride rises up. It's deceptive. It's insidious. Let me give you a quote from C.J. Mahaney, which I found very helpful. He's talking about pride. Can we kick that up there? Yeah, first one. Here's what he says. He's talking about Jonathan Edwards, who wrote in the 1730s, missionary to the American Indians, one of my heroes. He says, Jonathan Edwards called pride the worst viper that is in the heart and the greatest disturber of the soul's peace and sweet communion with Christ. He ranked pride as the most difficult sin to root out and the most hidden, secret, and deceitful of all lusts. Whoa! Now why is that so serious? It's because of the next thing that C.J. Mahaney goes on to say. Here's why this is so serious. He says, the warnings from Scripture about pride could not be more serious and sobering. Think of any warnings about pride in Scripture? The one that I thought of is it's in James 4 and 1 Peter 5. Do you know this one? God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Could there be anything more frightening than to think of Almighty Creator God being opposed to you. Nothing would be more frightening than that. So C.J. Mahaney says, the warnings from Scripture about pride could not be more serious and sobering. So what, what Isaiah wants us to feel from Isaiah 38 and 39 is, we need to take more seriously the possibility that there's pockets of pride in my heart. And so to, to be vigilant and to let the scriptures 
scan my heart on a regular basis to find if there's those viruses of indwelling sin, particularly the indwelling sin of pride. To say, Holy Spirit, through your word, search my heart. Are there pockets of pride? Because God will do that by the Spirit, through the word. He'll show you them, and then he'll give you power by his grace, means of grace, to destroy them. So let me give you a couple questions to ask about how we can tell if we are succumbing to pride. These are questions that I find helpful personally. I'm sure there's lots more, but these are the ones that I think uh, that I have found helpful. And I'm not going to elaborate on them. Each of these could probably be a whole message, but maybe in your home groups this week, wrestle with these questions to think through what's happening in your heart. One question. Um, I'm slipping into pride if... I feel superior to others instead of feeling humbled before God. If you look in your heart and what you're, what you're feeling is superiority to other people. I'm, I'm better than these people rather than a deep sense of humility before God. That would show a pocket of pride. Second, I find pleasure in people noticing me instead of in people exalting Christ. You leave a conversation and I really told that story well. They laughed. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a happening dude here. You know, and instead of, oh Lord, you know, that I leave that conversation so they're exalting you. I'm more aware of someone else's sinfulness than my own. Whose sinfulness are you the most in touch with? And, and the reason, I mean, see, like, I don't, I just see your outsides. I don't see your heart. I see my heart. So I, I, I see my sin much more clearly than I would see yours. Because I see, I see the inside of me, right? So we all should be more keenly aware of our own sinfulness than about others. But isn't it easy for us to be more preoccupied with other people's sin? Can I, I'm not the only one here, am I? Are you all like saying, man, fool, you got to get, this is terrible. Our pastor's like a totally prideful guy. He's like, has anybody talked to him about this? Okay. So, but you, you find yourself doing that, don't you? You've got your list about your wife, about your husband, right? Your boss. Okay. Next question. I talk about what exalts me instead of talking about what helps others. When you're in a conversation, why, you know, why do you talk about the things you talk about? What's your reason? I'm angry about my rights and what I think I deserve. And Dave, thanks for having us do that song about giving up my rights. Good song this morning. I hate sin because it makes me look bad, not because it dishonors Christ. Right? Anybody else? Anybody? Anybody? You do, right? Last one. I feel bad when others are noticed more than me. And there's a lot more, but these are just some, some questions that you can use and ask the Lord just to scan your heart. Is there that virus of, of pride that's lurking there that could erupt at any time and move me from an Isaiah 38 into an Isaiah 39? Okay, so what can we do? If pride is that insidious, that deceptive, if it can slip into us as easily as Jonathan Edwards says it can, if it's that hard to discern, if it's that hard to root out, what can we do? See, the good news is, God has given us an antivirus program right here, God's Word. And as, as you come... And, and ask the Lord, remember that prayer, I think it's in Psalm 19. Um, where is it? Psalm 19, Psalm 19 to 39. Search me, O God, and know my heart. 
139, is it Psalm 139? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in your everlasting way. God will always answer that question. So if we open our hearts up to the Lord and say, Lord, search me and know me and show me, he will show you. He will show you. The problem is we don't take indwelling sin seriously enough. We don't really understand what our hearts still have indwelling them. I mean, mostly we're new creations, new nature, born again, clothed with Christ's righteousness. He's increasing righteousness really in our hearts. We're growing in real righteousness. That's all glorious truth, which we need to celebrate more. But this side of heaven, there's indwelling sin, which Isaiah would tell us, be vigilant, be humble, be aware Ask God to show you. And so as we do that, he will. And he won't just show us, he'll also give us means of grace by which we can destroy it. So let me just give you three suggestions that that I have been taking and want to take more. Um, First of all, confess the sin of pride. You're confessing it. Trusting Jesus' death on the cross to forgive you for that sin and trusting his resurrection power to cleanse you from that sin. 1 John 1, nine, Great text. If we confess our sin, here's a promise. He is faithful and just to forgive us for our sin. So he will forgive that pride and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You confess from the heart. His power goes to work. He will cleanse. The guilt is lifted. Jesus paid for it. And the sin is Washed clean. You're washed clean from that sin. So confess it humbly, meaningfully to the Lord. Second, pray for the power of the Spirit to conquer your pride and to strengthen humility. If you're trusting Jesus Christ, then you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. The third person of the Trinity is living inside of you with his awesome power to squash pride. I've been praying lately to say, Lord, crush my vanity. Crush my pride. I just love praying that. Just destroy it because it's just so prevalent. And you have the third person of the Trinity living inside of you. And when you ask the Father in Jesus' name, crush my pride, create in me a clean heart, a broken and a contrite heart you will not despise. God will do that. Now, You can't make this happen on your own. If you leave here today saying, gosh, I guess it's probably a good idea. I should should stop being proud and I should be more humble. Okay, I'm just going to really stop. I'm just going to stop being proud. I'm just going to start being humble. You will not do it, okay? And if you think you did, it's because you're too proud, all right? You will not do it. You cannot do this. Quiz time. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Nothing. Okay, so we've got to confess Pray. And then third, nurture awe at God's glory, brokenness for your own sin. So awe in God's glory, brokenness for your own sin, and love for the cross. Through scriptures, okay? Find scriptures that display God and his glory and nurture 
awe and wonder at his sheer glory. Because as he is exalted before you, the proportions between you and him become even more uh, enhanced or larger, right? And just as you exalt him, you just say, look, I'm just, I'm just, it'll humble you. And then brokenness for your sin. I mean, one one, uh, passage I would encourage you to ponder is Hebrews 10, which warns us not to pursue willful sin, because when we sin, we crucify Christ afresh. Remember the first time I pondered that and, and let that scripture give me brokenness for sin. Jesus, it's like I'm there and I'm, I, I'm, I'm nailing you to the cross one more time. Can you imagine how you would feel if that's what you were doing? Jesus, I'm sorry. Got that hand. I mean, you just, just feel that. Let, let scriptures like that help you to see the dishonor to Christ that your sin has caused and let it bring brokenness for sin. And then look at scriptures which nurture your love for the cross. On the cross, Jesus' suffering was suffering for my sin. And he's there paying for my sin because he loves me. While I was still his enemy, he loved me. He died for me. God demonstrated his love for me by sending his son to be punished in my place. So the love of God, the love of the Father by the Holy Spirit displayed on the cross. So see that. I thought of this hymn. Uh, You know it, we sing it here. When I survey the wondrous cross... Remember that hymn? When I survey, when I think about the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory, Jesus Christ, on which the Prince of Glory died. So when I survey that, the cross, the Prince of Glory dying, my richest gain I count but loss. It's loss. It's nothing. It's nothing. And I pour contempt on all my pride. How does that happen? Surveying the wondrous cross. Seeing Jesus Christ. When you see him by faith, Holy Spirit works, he will crush your pride. He will give you a humble heart. You will love him. And that virus will have been found and destroyed. So here's what Isaiah wants to say to us this morning. Isaiah 38 and 39. I need to be more vigilant in noticing pride in my heart. You need to be more vigilant. None of, none of us are vigilant enough. None of us are aware enough of the subtleties of pride in our hearts. I'm not, you're not. Be vigilant and be encouraged because God will show you and God by his grace, means of grace, will enable you and you, through Jesus Christ, will see your heart changing. You'll see pride being subdued. You will see humility growing. And then take hope in this last thought. The day is coming. This is becoming more precious to me now that I'm seeing more and more the prevalence of my pride. The day is coming when you and I will be completely freed from pride and boastfulness and self-exaltation. Free. Free. Let's stand together. I just want to pray this over us. Oh, Mercy Hill Church, what what could happen?
What could happen if over these next weeks we, we, we took Isaiah 38 and 39 more seriously and we used God's word by the spirit to discover pockets of pride and then used the means of grace to subdue these pockets of pride? Think of what would happen in our marriages if we're walking with more humility. Think of what happened with our kids walking freed, freed progressively from pride and growing in humility. How, at the workplace, Think of the, the glory of Jesus, the beauty of Jesus Christ that would shine from your love as you walk through this world with humility. Oh, Lord, come and do this, I pray. Bring your power upon us here at Mercy Hill today. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for having Isaiah write these two chapters. They are sobering. They are shocking. We've all lived Isaiah 38 and 39 just like Hezekiah has lived them. So Lord, I pray, make us vigilant. Make us aware of how deceived we can be by our own pride. Show us these pockets of pride. And then Lord, I pray that, that you'd work into our hearts. In fact, I just want to have us, I just want to pray this over us right now. Lord, would you right now enable us to confess any pockets of pride you've shown us even right now this morning, just to confess them before you right now. And to trust you, Jesus Christ, to forgive us completely, freely through your death on the cross. And that through your work on the cross, you have broken the power of pride in us. And so you'll be cleansing us from all sin. Lord, work that into our hearts right now. And then let us rely on you more for the power of the Spirit to conquer pride and to strengthen humility. Lord, right now, do that. We plead with you. Conquer my pride. Conquer our pride, Lord. And let humility grow. Let humility blossom. Sweet, Christ-glorifying humility. Give that to us, Lord, I pray. And then, Lord, I pray that you'd give us sweet time in the word, nurturing awe of your glory and brokenness for our sin and love for the cross. Do that for us, Father, I pray, for the glory of your name. So thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.